Someone has to explain, if our economy is doing so great, how come everyone is broke? Okay. We'll try to explain that. Wish me luck. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with From you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, in Round Mountain on KKRN, and in Eureka on KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove, KSO in Cottage Grove, in Eugene on KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com here with another thrilling edition of the world-famous Bradcast. We're glad you could join us for it. And join not just me, but Desi Doyen as well. Hi, Des. Hi, I am here. All right. You am. I am. Earlier this week, the Institute for Policy Studies expert on inequality, Chuck Collins, wrote over at Common Dreams that Senator... Senate leader Mitch McConnell and Senators Charles Grassley, Chuck Grassley of Iowa and John Thune of South Dakota introduced the Death Tax Repeal Act of 2019. Uh, Collins observes that it is uh, worth noting that the number of annual taxable estates in their home states, the home states of those three senators, Kentucky, Iowa and South Dakota, are fewer than two dozen. That's uh, the Republican leader of the U.S. Senate proposing with two other top GOPers that we need to do away entirely with the estate tax on fewer than 24 people in their own three states combined. That's after already radically lowering the estate tax in their uh, huge tax cut last year for corporations and rich people just one year ago. They're still not done. They want to do away with the estate tax entirely, which they call the death tax. That, even as we hear constantly how people like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren, that they're they're all crazy. They're just radical. They're far outside the mainstream because they want to raise taxes 
on the wealthy. And yes, presumably those fewer than two dozen people in those three states in order to pay for things like, you know, Medicare for all. For all. That would be everyone. A Green New Deal. Free college tuition. All of which, uh, just like raising taxes on millionaires and billionaires, all of that stuff is just wildly popular among the American people, including among Republicans, but apparently not in the U.S. Senate, apparently not on Fox News, and frankly, apparently not even on the uh, non-wingnut media, the regular old corporate media who see those ideas as just crazy, insane. We could never afford them. They're pie in the sky so-called liberal ideas, liberal ideas that, by the way, the majority of uh, people who identify themselves as conservative also support. Whereas, you know, killing the estate tax on dead millionaires and billionaires, that's perfectly normal. I mean, yeah, it's so normal that you probably haven't even heard a word of complaint about it from the corporate media that they want to kill the, the death tax repeal act of 2019. You probably haven't even heard about it at all from the corporate media, much less, of course, the uh, wingnut right wing media like Fox News, etc. Instead, today, we, we heard all about how the economy added 300,000 jobs in January. It's going gangbusters more than expected. The economy is on rocket fuel with record low unemployment. So why should those so-called liberals want to mess it all up by, you know, increasing anybody's taxes and giving anybody services that are wildly popular and, uh, you know, wildly requested from not just Democrats, but also from independents and even Republicans. This crazy idea that, oh, you're an average person in America, you pay your taxes. How crazy of you to expect to get something in return, in return for that? In return? What? And, and all of that, even as we consistently hear how America is going broke, we, we've got to, quote unquote, save Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. How? By cutting those programs somehow. In the meantime, did we learn actually anything at all after the recent 35-day government shutdown when hundreds of thousands of Americans were suddenly on the precipice of bankruptcy after missing just one single pay paycheck? Did it teach us anything? Or more importantly, did it teach our elected officials anything about the real costs of income equality and racial disparity that continues in this country, that continues to get worse, not better? Anyway, we will be joined by Chuck Collins of the uh, Institute for Policy Studies momentarily to discuss all of the above. But very quickly today, uh, we spoke a bit yesterday about H.R. 1, the Democrats' uh, new massive elections and ethics reform bill uh, in the U.S. House that would, among other things, lead to automatic universal voter registration for all eligible Americans, same-day voter registration, penalties for interfering with voter registration, blocking deceptive practices and voter intimidation, preventing partisan gerrymandering and, and voter purges. It would declare Election Day to be a holiday for federal workers. It would institute ethics and lobbying reform uh, surrounding campaigns and elections. And yes, as we noted in detail yesterday, it would allow every voter in America to cast their vote on a hand-marked paper ballot. Again, all wildly popular ideas if you pull them out one by one. 
it'll uh, probably, hopefully, pass in the U.S. House, but whether it would ever see the light of day in the U.S. Senate, that's another issue. H.R. 1 would also expand early voting to mandate at least two weeks of early voting in every state. Many states already have much more than that, but about half the states have no early voting at all. So H.R. 1 or the uh, For the People Act of 2019 would require uh, at least two weeks of early voting as a minimum. So there's a lot of good stuff in that bill. Uh, most of it, as I say, wildly popular pretty much everywhere when people are asked about each of those provisions individually. Yet some states, for some reason, are still trying to move in the opposite direction. I mentioned uh, Senator John Thune, who introduced the Death Tax Repeal Act of 2019, who can't have, I, I, I didn't look at his state specifically, but I can't imagine he's got more than uh, five people in the entire state of South Dakota who would uh, benefit from this repeal of the death tax. Although I suspect he does have quite a few people who would benefit from things in H.R. 1. But apparently too many people in South Dakota are voting. Or it's become entirely too convenient for them or something. And Republicans who already have both of the U.S. senators, U.S. Senate seats in South Dakota, they're both Republican. The state has an entirely Republican U.S. House delegation. Of course, that's not saying much because South Dakota only has one U.S. House member, one at-large member. But still... Even with that, they would like to make voting a bit less convenient in the state for some reason. Republican lawmakers now have introduced a bill to shorten the early voting process, according to KELO, from 46 days, which is a very generous early voting period, to just 14 days. So cut it by more than half for some reason. One of the bill's co-sponsors, uh, Republican State Rep. Carl Perry, told KELO uh, that uh, he believes the early voting period is just too long. 39 states plus the District of Columbia currently offer some sort of early voting, according to the National Conference of State, Legislate, uh, State Legislatures. The average early voting period is about 22 days. But if HB 1178 becomes law in South Dakota, uh, the uh, date would be below the nation's average for the length of early voting periods. Perry told the outlet KELO that he believes the original reason for early voting was to accommodate absentee voters, but he said it was now used by any voter who wants to cast an early ballot. How dare they? I know. What? Any old voter who wants to show up and vote? Why should they be allowed to do that? That's outrageous. That's crazy talk. The early voting period before November's midterm elections, apparently, saw hundreds of thousands of new voters. Oh, oh. maybe there you go. Maybe there's the problem. Nearly uh, 24 million people across the country cast earlier absentee ballots by the week before the midterm elections. That, according to uh, data collected by uh, Michael McDonald over at the University of Florida's Election Project, McDonald told The Hill that young people, young people tend to vote in larger numbers during the week prior to the election, and we're seeing some evidence that young people are indeed starting to turn out. 
At least 27 states surpassed the number of early votes cast in the entire 2014 election, meaning 27 states last year in in early voting alone had more voters than their entire 2014 election, the last midterms. And, of course, young voters are also more likely to favor Democrats over Republicans in congressional elections by a pretty huge majority of 66 to 32 percent, according to a uh, poll from Harvard Institute of Politics. But uh, South Dakota, so maybe they're just getting a, a, a jump on this and they want to, as quickly as possible, keep these young voters from uh, being able to conveniently vote as they like to vote, which is apparently early voting. But I mean, I was looking at their their results. It's not completely clear what's going on here. I looked uh, back in 2016, the last presidential election, voters elected just one Democrat to the state Senate in South Dakota while electing three Democrats to the state House. But in 2018, these last midterm elections with this big turnout, voters again elected one Democrat to the state Senate in South Dakota, but zero Democrats to the state house in South Dakota, which is entirely Republican. Entirely. (laughs) No Democrats whatsoever. So it's unclear what they're complaining about. The GOP actually came out better in 2018. It could be this. I look back at the governor's race back in 2014. That year, the Republican candidate defeated the Democratic candidate by about 45 points, a huge rout. Whereas in 2018, when the uh, governor was uh, up for election again, in that case, the Republican won again, but defeated the Democrat by just three and a half points. Aha. There you go. It's a Republican protection plan. Looks like the voters getting a little too close out there in South Dakota. So (laughs) got to stop that. Maybe so. Well, you know, and also it's a Trump protection plan, I'm sure. They're trying to protect him. And if they start now, they just might get it done in time. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's really weird. It's one of these. And, uh, you know, I want to talk to Chuck Collins about some of these uh, ideas, too, because, you know, the American people clearly want one thing. They want to expand voting. They want to make it easier to vote. And then you've got this group of, well, Republican officials who who just are moving in the completely opposite direction. How long can that last? How do we explain that? We'll uh, talk to him about that in a moment. But at the same time, uh, I want to get this in real quick here. The uh, Trump administration's $1.5 trillion tax cut package appeared to have no major income uh, impact on businesses, capital investment or hiring plans, according to a survey released a year after the biggest overhaul of the U.S. tax code in more than 30 years. The National Association of Business Economics, their uh, quarterly business conditions poll was published earlier this week and found that while some companies reported accelerating investment because of lower corporate taxes, 84% of respondents said they had not changed any of their plans. That compares to 81% in the previous survey published in October. So they got this huge tax cut and they didn't do anything with it. Well, they did do something. They hoovered up all of that tax cut and gave it to themselves and their shareholders. Yeah. 
They uh, did not, not to their workers, not to their workers, not reinvesting in the business or the economy. So just really one huge con, as we all knew that it was. But now uh, empirical data proves it to be the case. The White House had predicted that the massive fiscal stimulus package marked by the reduction in the corporate tax rate to just 21 percent from 35 percent, that that would somehow boost business spending and job growth. But it didn't almost at all. Who could have predicted it? Well, actually, many economists predicted it. But continuing to cut taxes and then claim America is broke and can't afford any new programs that actually help people as opposed to, you know, help defense contractors. Cutting taxes now, that seems to be about the only policy that Republicans have to offer the American people. Oh, and if we keep the keep the polls open for too many weeks, well, that's just too expensive as well. The money it costs uh, and the votes, apparently, that it costs us. So what did uh, you know what we all witnessed during the recent government shutdown with hundreds of thousands of federal workers struggling to get by after missing just one paycheck, even in this economy that we're told is so amazing? Did, did any of that actually change any of these equations we're talking about here for elected officials? Do they have they begun to understand how they are on the other side of the American people themselves, the majority of the American people? Did it change how regular Americans look at their own government policies, particularly when a Republican Party that seems to be working against the poor and the middle class, uh, no matter how much the media have underscored this uh, this notion that voters have turned to Republicans back in 2016 because they were suffering from so-called economic anxiety. Have we learned anything from all of this? Let's take a quick break and we'll find out if we have. We'll talk about all of that and much more with inequality expert Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Amidst Donald Trump's recent federal government shutdown, we covered a lot of stories on this program about furloughed workers, their families, government contractors and their families, not to mention the elderly, disabled and other Americans struggling with poverty and hoping to survive the record long 35 day closure without going hungry for going medical care or even losing their homes in the bargain. Uh, we ran an insightful new rule segment from uh, HBO's Bill Maher about a week ago, uh, observing that what the shutdown actually served to reveal was just how close so many of us in this country 
So many with actual jobs, theoretically good jobs, who have been employed for years, still remain to the very brink of poverty, just one lost paycheck away from ruin. Here's a few of Mars comments from that segment. Someone has to explain, if our economy is doing so great, how come everyone is broke? To me, the real lesson of this government shutdown is that we found out that federal workers, quintessential middle-class jobs, can't afford to miss one paycheck. I guess this is what Fox means by getting tired of winning. When did it get this desperate? This shutdown is not about the wall. It's about the wallet. Our economy no longer creates a middle class. It sucks it dry. It sure does. Rochelle Poe offers just one such example among millions in this country. She's a single black woman who has spent the last 20 years working for the Department of Agriculture. In 2017, she moved from my old hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, to Raleigh, North Carolina, at her own expense to take a promotion with the department, a move that put her so deep into debt even after 20 years at the same job that for a year she had to work a second part-time job. She earns less than $61,000 that a, uh, a Raleigh newspaper had reported as the minimum salary needed to afford a home in the area. That, according to a story this week by Janelle Ross at NBC News. Poe has long lived without cable, Starbucks, and many of the other so-called luxuries that some financial advisors insist that people can cut out and solve their monetary problems. When Poe went without pay during the furlough, friends advised her to rely on her savings, but she does not have any. The move had drained them. North Carolina unemployment officials told her she did not have sufficient written proof of her unemployment during the shutdown, rejecting her claim three times before finally approving it during the last week. And when Poe went to her apartment complex management uh, to ask for an extension, she was told to pay up or expect eviction proceedings to begin in just 15 days. And then Poe heard billionaire Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross on CNBC say that he just could not understand why furloughed workers were facing such struggles that they'd have to rely on food banks when they could easily just take out a bank loan or something to cover the gap. Mr. Secretary, there are reports that there are some federal workers who are going to homeless shelters to get food. Well, I know they are, and I don't really quite understand why, because The obligations that they would undertake, say a borrowing from a bank or a credit union, are in effect federally guaranteed. So the 30 days of pay that some people will be out, there's no real reason why they shouldn't be able to get a loan against it. Jeez. Uh, Out of touch there much, Mr. Secretary? Uh, Poe said in response to this notion that they could just go take out a loan. Poe said in response, I don't think I quite have the words to convey to you how scary, how disheartening, how hurtful this experience has been. You run into people who are, I guess, themselves so comfortable that they are just completely ignorant of the realities of other people's lives. There seems to be uh, too much of that ignorance, particularly among those who actually create the policies that allow these sorts of inequalities to exist. 
and in fact uh, get worse for so long. The only reason that uh, Poe, whose parents are both deceased, had any food or gas at all in the last month is thanks to uh, some helpful uh, friends and some pickup work she was able to get at a distillery in Durham. While workers like Poe have returned to their jobs, NBC notes the problems that come with economic insecurity remain top of mind for millions of poor and middle class Americans living on the financial edge. Most of these Americans are white, but a disproportionate share are not. Many of them work, but they have been crushed for at least a decade since the Great Recession, NBC's Ross notes, by stagnant wages and rising costs for everything essential to live. I would argue, of course, that the crushing of the poor and the middle class has been going on for much, much longer than the Great Recession, of course. But NBC writes uh, that uh, much like the federal workers who were left scrambling with little savings after their pay was cut off, many Americans do not have anything left over to save, not even to cover a $400 emergency. Chuck Collins, a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches inequality, told NBC the economy has been shut down for a lot of people long before the government shut down. So just about two weeks before another government shutdown could very well occur again if Donald Trump doesn't get the billions he's demanding for his border wall that not even his own top intelligence and security officials believes to be necessary. Has the previous shutdown at least helped us learn anything about the inequality and struggle that so many Americans are facing, even Americans who have been gainfully employed for years, for decades in the case of Rochelle Poe, but who can barely stand to miss one single paycheck? And if we have learned anything, what can we and should we do about it? And will our elected officials actually be willing to do so. Here to help answer, hopefully, some of these questions is Chuck Collins. He's an expert on U.S. inequality and the racial wealth divide. He's a senior scholar and program director at the Institute for Policy Studies, and he also co-edits inequality.org. Mr. Collins, thanks for joining us today on the broadcast, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, Brad. You bet. I I, I don't know if it's uh, fair to call it an upside, really, uh, but do you get the sense that Americans, or, or more importantly, our elected officials, I guess, that they actually learned anything uh, from these stories uh, of struggles, so many uh, that we saw during uh, the past, whatever it was, 35 days of that shutdown uh, that people were facing during the, the uh, furlough uh, over December and January? Did they learn anything at all from that? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people were, uh, you know, surprised about just the percentage of people who live in poverty mm-hmm. and who live paycheck to paycheck, and and in that way, I think it it was eye opening and, you know, even empathy producing. You know, that, that you know, I think, it, you know, I think people silently suffer uh, the economic insecurities that mm-hmm. that 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 they experience, and this was another shared moment where. A lot of people were saying, "Yeah, I'm. I don't have any savings. I have no cushion. I I have to go to the food bank, and I and I'm a median income worker. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it it uh, it opened a lot of eyes and potentially some hearts and minds as well." Janelle Ross writes in her piece at NBC that uh, most of the jobs that employ the largest number of Americans pay less than forty thousand dollars a year 
half of all retail clerks who have America's most common job earn $23,000 a year or less. That is below the poverty line. Uh, as defined by the government, uh, how do these facts square up with uh, what we are constantly told is a great economy, one of the best, uh, you know, the country has ever seen, at least measured by the record low unemployment. And, you know, today, for example, more screaming reports about 300,000 jobs being added in January, higher than anyone predicted. It seems like these are sort of two concurrent, completely opposite storylines going on at the same time. Uh, no, I mean, how, how can this be squared when we learn at the very same time how many people are just one paycheck away from disaster? Well, I think they, they are they are part of the same story. I mean, uh, it is good news that unemployment is extraordinarily low, but it also shows like what unemployment in a flat wage economy looks like. I mean, we've pretty much wages for the bottom half of U.S. households are pretty much have been stalled out for, you know, 40 years. Mm -hmm. So I think, and then, you know, as you indicated in the introduction, you know, mm -hmm. I think the economic meltdown was another jolt in that where people saw savings, home equity, and other things go away to the extent they had any. So, you know, and the thing that I've struck me, Brad, is, is uh, we now know the bottom 21% of households has zero or negative wealth. Uh, they have no cushion. Mm -hmm. uh, and the next fifth are not much better off, you know, have less than $1,000 cash if they have any kind of emergency, a car breakdown or something like that. So it's, that's the, the, the hidden reality is so many people without any savings cushion with very little to fall back on. Yeah, I mean, it, it. You know, it seems that we hear about these record low unemployment numbers, and yet uh, the the poor, the middle class, still do not seem to be getting ahead. And then on top of that story, of course, is the racial disproportionality to all of it. Uh, Eight point seven percent of white Americans were poor in 2017, but the figure for black Americans was over 21 percent for Latinos, over 18 percent, 10 percent for Asian Americans. That according to census data. And yet all we've heard about since the 2016 election, Chuck, is the so-called economic anxiety of the white middle class Americans. Why is it economic anxiety when white people are affected? But when it's everyone else, uh, it's, you know, it's it, it's poverty, it's laziness, people not working hard enough. Uh, when everybody is struggling really against the same poverty line, what explains the difference in uh, in the way we regard trouble, poverty for white people versus poverty for everyone else in this country? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, we we have we live with some pretty powerful narratives about deservedness and why people are poor and why people don't have you know high incomes. And uh, you know, I would put it on a bumper sticker: the the myth is everyone is where they deserve to be. Uh, <laughs> and so you know. 40 years of stagnant wages has obviously hit a lot of white households. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a, a rising insecurity, uh, certainly I think coming out of the economic meltdown a decade ago, a lot of white families experienced a sort of shock and vulnerability. They thought, you know, we thought we were uh, immune, mm -hmm. that we were individually secure, and then all of a sudden we weren't. Um, so I think there is an experience uh, that a lot of white people have gone through. And I would say kind of keeps us from being able to see the experience 
the parallel experience of everyone else and the fact that the racial inequalities are deeper and even more insecure. So going back to what we were just talking about, 37% of African-American households, zero or negative wealth. 33% Latino households, underwater, 33%. So, you know, yes, a lot of white people are feeling the pain, but a lot of people of all colors and races are feeling that insecurity and pain. But it seems like, uh, you know, only after 10, 20, 30, 40 years of uh, these stagnant wages have uh, kept the middle class down, it seems like after only, you know, all of that time, uh, when, frankly, white folks are now dealing with these issues, that we invented this term economic anxiety to basically, you know, talk about what it is that uh, so many minorities have been struggling with for so many decades in this country. And I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm just troubled about that. You know, obviously I'm concerned about everyone who is facing these struggles, but there's just a, a certain hypocrisy, it seems to me, uh, that has emerged in the past couple of years, perhaps to explain Donald Trump's 2016 election, between these two ways of describing the very same phenomena. No, I mean, I think you're making an important point, which is that our our racial lenses tell, you know, we say, oh, white people struggling are deserving, you know, oh, those those white government workers who are on, you know, temporary furlough or whatever, uh, through no fault of their own, they are deserving. And But right. other people, people who are brown and black, uh, you know, have, have some kind of failing or, uh, you know, are, are undeserving. So I think that's part of it, is we just attach this, these crude labels, and often those are racialized. And unfortunately, we don't sort of have a culture of solidarity where we kind of look around and of people of all races and say, they're, they're for the grace of God, go I, or yeah. whatever. It could happen to me, or boy, my condition is similar. Uh, we, we tend to differentiate and differentiate the narratives, if you will, of why people are the way, where they are. In uh, 2017, MIT researchers identified uh, $33,425, or that equates to $16.07 per hour. Now, that would be the, I guess, the average living wage, the amount needed to survive without public assistance in this country. Uh, and yet, e even our most progressive politicians are fighting like hell for a $15 an hour minimum wage, which would be below the living wage. So they're fighting for $15 an hour, if that can be accomplished. It still uh, wouldn't happen, by the way, for several years, most likely, as it was phased in incrementally. If so many Americans, uh, if not elected officials, are familiar with these struggles, why do so many of them keep voting for officials who have no interest in changing this equation, it seems, even as those uh, s same people denigrate, you know, those who must rely on on public assistance. Uh, the I was uh, struck. I think this was in uh, was this in uh, Janelle's uh, NBC story that House Speaker Paul Ryan in 2012 
uh, said that the social safety net had become a kind of, quote, hammock that lulls able-bodied people to, to lives of dependency and complacency that drains them of their will and their incentive to make the most of their lives. I mean, that should seem to me to be a disqualifying statement for any elected politician. And yet they elected Paul Ryan, uh, you know, again and again. Uh, why? Explain to me why so many Americans continue to vote against their own best interests, if you can. <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, I think part of it's this mythology we talk about. Paul Ryan also talked about the makers and the takers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you realize, well, you, I, I'm a maker. You know, I'm a virtuous maker. We all want to be on the maker side of that equation, when in fact, you know, many of us depend on public support. Paul Ryan himself was able to go to college on a, you know, a defense uh, scholarship. Mm-hmm. But I think part of what's going on is that raising the minimum wage is actually incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking 75 to 80 percent of the electorate support it, but that at the national level, our political system has been captured. Uh, but I think there's going to be a realignment. I think the more people who run on raising the minimum wage, raising the tip minimum wage, which is under 250 an hour, mm. uh, and it's been frozen there for decades, and and also other policies that would reduce inequality, those are those are wildly popular. And so I think part of it is we need to uh, lift up more leaders. Uh, you know, some people are voting against uh, their own interests, but a lot of people are just hitting the roadblock of the power of money influencing the political system and are effectively, we are disenfranchised when it comes to having our voices represented. I I, want to ask you about uh, some of those solutions that I know you've been writing about of late uh, at The Hill and um, uh, Common Dreams and, and elsewhere. So I want to ask you about that in a second. But we are, you know, we're constantly told we don't have enough money for education, for health care. Uh, we can't afford those things. There's always plenty of money for the military, however, to uh, and and to build border walls, apparently. Uh, nobody ever asks where we will get the money to pay for those things. And yet, half of all people in this country will receive food stamps at some point in their lifetime. And in 2017, about 40 million people lived in food insecure homes. Now, at the same time, we are a very wealthy country. I guess this sort of goes back to the old uh, John Edwards Two Americas thing, I guess, as I'm uh, asking it. But are we alone in, in in this sort of disparity between the rich and the poor? Or do other wealthy nations uh, see similarly obscene gaps, frankly, between the uh, between the well off and the poor and middle class? Is this or is this uh, uniquely? Is this American exceptionalism, as they say, Chuck Collins? Uh, we are kind of exceptional in terms of the levels of extreme inequality, um, and you know there are many other industrialized countries uh, that that have way less inequality, including Canada to the north mm-hmm. and a lot of the European uh, countries and the Scandinavian countries in particular mm-hmm. have way less inequality. Um, and I think part of our exceptionalism is we do have a hyper-individualized culture. We we have kind of weak, not entirely gone, but we have a sort of weak sense of of solidarity and, and uh, mutual aid. Uh, you know, your point about food stamps is part of that. You know, it's like uh, 
why wouldn't you want to have a system in place that you may have used or you may someday need Mm -hmm. in terms of a minimal social safety net? It's really in our self-interest. And yet, because we're divided and pitted against each other by race and culture and class, we we tend to think of that's for other people until I need it. Mm. Um, so we, 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 we're, I think, short-sighted often in, you know, why, you know, why wouldn't we want to have a minimal uh, safety net? Why wouldn't we want to have a system of higher education that, the, that it allows young people to go to college and graduate without tens of thousands of dollars in debt? It worked for the post-World War II generation. It worked for millions of people who got debt-free college and, and launch their lives and careers. Have we forgotten that entirely? You know, there's a certain amnesia at work as well mm. that public investments and public support have made it possible for lots of people to, to move forward in their lives and have good lives. Uh, and we shouldn't forget that when it comes to the next generation. I, I think uh, we have forgotten that. I think it was uh, Ronald, Ronald Reagan and his uh, Jedi mind trick that the government is, uh, the, the sol- is not the solution, but it is the problem. Uh, and I think for the past 40 years, we sort of have forgotten that uh, there are solutions in government. So what is, uh, what is the solution here, Chuck Collins? How, how do we bend this curve? How do we close this gap? We've heard recently that uh, worker income is supposedly finally rising a little bit for the first time in a decade or more. But uh, but it, if that continues, is it enough to even come close to changing this awful playing field for really the majority of Americans? Well, I think we're going to surprise ourselves. I think we're we're heading into a kind of a realignment. I think most people understand that these inequalities and these insecurities are a dead end. Uh, they also are kind of getting tired of hearing, you know, billionaires tell us what to do and how the economy should be organized and, uh, you know, realizing that this, this corrosive corruption and c- concentration at the wealth of, at the top is bad. So I think we're going to see social movements. I think we're going to see young people out there pressing for uh, low-cost college. In fact, you know, the Col- California College for All Coalition has this great proposal to bring back California's state estate tax, mm-hmm. uh, tax only paid, you know, by people with $10 million and up, mm-hmm. and dedicate the money to low-cost or free uh, college, just like a whole other generation in the 60s and 70s benefited from. That is a great example of what I would call a game-changing campaign. It, uh, it, it engages a constituency, uh, millions of younger people and their parents who are paying these high tuition bills. Uh, it reduces the concentration of wealth by restoring an, a tax on inheritances, and it creates opportunities for everyone else. Uh, so that's just one example. I think this whole idea of a Green New Deal, you know, investments in, in infrastructure that would prepare us uh, for a, a more ecological economy mm-hmm. that's going to create a lot of jobs and it could be created by taxing you know fossil fuels and taxing uh, certain kinds of consumption mm-hmm. those are the kind of things that I think are going to turn things around and uh, you know in the last I've been struck Brad in the last couple weeks uh, you know we saw representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez basically say well we should restore the top tax rate in the income tax to 70%, mm-hmm. um, but which, by the way, is a wildly popular idea. People yep. think that, you know, 80% think that's a great idea. 
And then we have Senator Warren proposing a tax on wealth over over fifty million. Right. Uh, and Senator Sanders talking about why we should have a a steeply progressive inheritance tax again. So all, all those show that the conversation is rapidly shifting, uh, and it's true that not, no policies are going to change in the short term, but this is how change happens. Uh, people start having very different conversations. I love that you uh, write. You've been, a, as I said, a very busy guy. You, you've uh, written about Elizabeth Warren's proposal over at the Hill on uh, taxing the ultra-rich. You've uh, written about Bernie, what you describe as Bernie's Plutocracy Prevention Act, which is a great uh, name at Common, uh, Common Dreams. I think that's better than what he's calling it, which is the For the 99.8% Act. Uh, which increases the estate tax, as I understand it. Uh, Those, of course, go against what government has been doing for decades now, Uh, even though, as you know, Chuck, they're very popular with, you know, voters. So, uh, I mean, what so what will it actually take to adopt some of these? uh, Pardon me, radical. They don't seem very radical to me, uh, but, uh, you know, that's the way they're being regarded by not just the right wing media, but uh, the the non wing nut media, the corporate media. Uh, What what will it take to actually adopt some of these policies at this point? Uh, and change them from what is being regarded as pie-in-the-sky ideas to, you know, actual policy that could bend this curve we're talking about. Well, there, there are radical ideas like like uh, President Dwight Eisenhower was radical. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about essentially uh, bringing, restoring the tax code to, to what it was in the decades after World War II. Um, and, par- and so part of it is to say, look, these are not, these are not radical ideas. This is this was these were the kind of tax policies we had when we were focused on lifting people out of poverty when we had a war on poverty when we were investing in expanding middle class opportunity at, in the era when people could get low interest loans to buy homes and and uh, you know debt free higher education those are radical ideas now but they were not radical ideas before mm-hmm. and and so yeah I think part of it is shifting the conversation and part of it's you know, in, uh, I think we will see a social movement that includes, you know, running candidates for office who become champions of these ideas, who lift them up and lift up others. Um, people will win and lose congressional seats on these issues. And, and, you know, it's true that our political system is captured by the billionaires, it's captured by a few hundred global corporations, but part of resting the power away is the, you know, we, we voters still have a little bit of say, and sometimes we have more power than we know. So I think, you know, campaigns in states like California for, for College for All will lay the groundwork for the national realignment that mm. I think uh, we certainly need and I think is really possible. And I think it should be noted here uh, that a few decades ago, uh, college was free for all in uh, California through the uh, uh, California State University system. That changed over time. But, yeah, you're right. It, it It is possible. It had been done before. Again, that may have been before the Ronald Reagan Jedi mind trick, but uh, it is doable. Uh, Let me give you, Chuck, uh, one opportunity here, a last thought. Uh, If, in fact, we see some of these measures, uh, like Elizabeth Warren's uh, tax on the ultra-rich or uh, AOC, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's tax um, or Bernie's 
Plutocracy Prevention Act, would this, in fact, free up enough revenue to actually pay for these things like Medicare for All, Green New, New Deal, free college tuition, etc.? Uh, and, and I'm sort of giving you that softball because... You know, these are regarded as, well, they may be popular ideas, but even if we do these taxes, we can never actually afford to pay for these things. Your response on the way out the door here, Chuck. <laughs> uh, those initiatives together would raise substantial revenue. I mean, the, the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax alone would raise $3 trillion over, over a decade. Mm -hmm. um, so we're starting to talk about real money here. I think we have to close some pretty substantial loopholes. Um, but, boy, you know, we, we are not broke. We, we as a society have a tremendous amount of revenue. We've stopped taxing wealth. We've, we've allowed it to go offshore and into secret trusts and that sort of thing. Um, but if we focused on, you know, collecting revenue from those with the greatest capacity to pay, we could make the investments that will make a huge difference. And, by the way, not all these billionaires are opposed to this. There's, there's this whole network, the patriotic millionaires, other networks who, of successful and wealthy business people who understand too much inequality is bad for the whole society and it's bad for the economy. It's in no, one, it's no one's interest to keep going this direction. So we're not broke. We have a lot of resources. We have a lot of wealth as a society. And we can do better, so much better in terms of creating a society where the economy works for everybody, not just the uber-rich. Chuck Collins is an expert on U.S. inequality and the racial wealth divide. Uh, he is a senior scholar and program director at the Institute for Policy Studies. You can follow him on the Twitters at Chuck92 to 1. And uh, he's also the editor of inequality.org. And his latest book is Born on Third Base. A one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Chuck Collins, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you don't mind if we bother you again in the future. No, look forward to talking again. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, sir. Okay, a quick break, and uh, just a few more thoughts on, on this. Coming out of, of all place, Davos, a week or two ago. Uh <laughs> Anyway, stick around for that. That's coming up next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, earlier this week, 
Uh, Senate Leader Mitch McConnell, Chuck Grassley, John Thune, three uh, Republicans, they introduced the Death Tax Repeal Act of 2019, despite the fact that in uh, their home states, Kentucky, Iowa, and South Dakota, there are uh, fewer than two dozen people that would qualify uh, to get that tax cut after they were dead. Priorities for the Republicans. So, yeah, I mean, we're not even just cutting it for million millionaires and billionaires while they're alive. We also have to cut their taxes after they're dead. Anyway, last week, the world's millionaires and billionaires met in Davos, Switzerland, uh, at the World Economic Forum to discuss, I guess, what those millionaires and billionaires should do to, uh, A, help themselves stay rich, while uh, in theory helping the poor and middle class to somehow survive. So I want to play this clip from the forum. It was put together by Now This um, at a panel on economic inequality held uh, in Davos uh, with, uh, this is historian Rutger Bregman and uh, the executive director of Oxfam International, Winnie uh, Bianyima, Uh, when they basically confronted the billionaires at Davos about their avoidance of taxes and how, you know, they're all looking at stimulus programs. What can we do? But they're not talking about taxes. And uh, they cite that as a primary factor of the increasing economic inequality around the world. And so we'll, we'll hear a little bit of that. And then this pointed exchange where the former Chief financial officer of Yahoo, a guy by the name of Ken Goldman, actually stood up. He was sort of outraged, just outraged about this conversation, which all sort of underscores that the wealthy really do not want to pay their fair share of taxes. Oxfam's uh, Bianyima debunked the premise of his question. Uh, Anyway, here is this uh, rather enlightening clip from Davos last week. This is my first time at Davos, and and I find it quite a bewildering experience, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, 1,500 private yets have flown in here to hear Sir David Attenborough speak about, you know, how we're wrecking the planet. And, uh, I mean, I hear people talk in the language of participation and justice and equality and transparency. But then, I mean, almost no one raises the real issue of tax avoidance, right? And of the rich just not paying their fair share. I mean, it feels like I'm at a firefighters fighters conference and no one's allowed to speak about water, right? <laughs> there, was, there was only one panel, actually. Well, we've had two. You're the second well, of well, our panelists. There, there so was only one panel. Let's go there. One. One panel hidden away in the media center that was actually about tax avoidance. Yeah. I, was about, I was one of the 15 participants. So <laughs> something needs to change here. I mean, ten, 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum asked the question, what must industry do to prevent a broad social backlash? The answer is very simple. Just stop talking about philanthropy and start talking about taxes, mm-hmm. taxes, taxes. We need to, mm-hmm. I mean, just two days ago, there was a billionaire in here, uh, what's his name, Michael Dell. And uh, he asked the question like, name me one country where a top marginal tax rate of 70% has actually worked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm a historian. The United States, that's where it has actually worked. In the 1950s, during <laughs> Republican President Eisenhower, you know, the war veteran, the top marginal tax rate in the U.S. was 91% mm-hmm. for people like Michael Dell. You know, the top estate tax for people like Michael Dell was more than 70%. I mean, this is not rocket science. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more, but come on, it's we got to be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it, taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit. In my opinion, we have a tax system that leaks so much 
that allows $170 billion of money every year to be taken to tax havens and to be denied the developing countries that need that money most. So we have to look at the business model and we have to look at the role of governments to tax and plow back money into people's lives. I have to say, honestly, this is a very one-sided panel. The U.S. basically has the lowest unemployment rate ever, the lowest black unemployment rate ever, lowest youth unemployment ever. Uh, we've actually reduced poverty around the world. No one's talking about that at all. So I'd like for the panel to talk about beyond taxes, which every one of you have talked about. The only thing you've talked about in this whole panel on inequality, mm -hmm. what can we really do to solve and help solve inequality over time beyond taxes? The gentleman who talked about, who said we've just talked taxes and that jobs are there and there's low and unemployment rates are low. Let me tell you something. We're talking about jobs, but the quality of those jobs. And we also work with poultry workers in the richest country in the world, the United States. Poultry workers. These are women who are cutting the chickens and packing them and we buy them in the supermarkets. Dolores, one woman we work with there, told us that she and her co-workers have to wear diapers to work because they are not allowed toilet breaks. This is in the richest country in the world. That's not a dignified job. Those are the jobs we are being told about, that globalization is bringing jobs. The quality of the jobs matter. It matters. These are not jobs of dignity. In many countries, workers no longer have a, a voice. They are not allowed to unionize. They are not allowed to negotiate for, for salaries. So we're talking about jobs, but jobs that bring dignity. We are talking about healthcare. The World Bank has told us that 3.4 billion people who earn $5.5 a day are on the verge, are just a medical bill away from sinking into poverty. They don't have health care. They are just a crop failure away from sinking back into poverty. They have no crop insurance. So don't tell me about low levels of unemployment. You are counting the wrong things. You're not counting dignity of people. You're counting exploited people. All right, we got to get out. Uh, thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion today or any other day, you can download the broadcast for free anytime at bradblog.com. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I hope you will uh, say hello there and share what we do. You can find me uh, on both Facebook and Twitter at the Brad Blog. And as ever, my thanks to those of us, those of you who have helped us celebrate our 15th anniversary at bradblog.com by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We need your support to stay on the air, uh, so thank you. And that is it. That's a wrap for today. Until we meet again soon, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.